Thanks for coming out to session seven out of 12 sessions, and uh, we're over halfway through. Let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. I ask you again tonight, as I've asked you multiple times, that you would open our minds and reveal the scriptures to us. Your Holy Spirit is the revealer of truth, and we seek you tonight. We seek, and we knock, and we ask that you would reveal yourself in new ways to us, that we might know you, the one true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent to save the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we concluded with the topic of food sacrifice to idols. Now, that's not an issue that most Americans normally face on a Wednesday, for example. Not exactly commonplace. But the point that was being made by Paul was that if you sacrifice a, a lamb to an idol, a false god, a false god's not really a god at all, so it's like doing nothing to nothing. The problem is that while you're doing nothing to nothing, somebody who is weak in the faith sees it as something to something. In reality, it's nothing to nothing. It's meaningless. It has no meaning. But if the guy standing beside you has this weak conscience, and he's a believer, maybe he's a new believer, not mature, he sees you doing what you call nothing to nothing, and he sees something to something, and he falls into the trap of idolatry because you thought it was no big deal. And that it isn't a big deal except you are in the body of Christ. If you were standing alone by yourself, it's not a big deal. Why? Because you're spiritually mature to handle it. But here's the point. Here's the point. Here's where we start tonight. You are not standing alone. You're connected, interconnected to the body of Christ. If you don't like the idea of being connected and interconnected to the body of Christ, don't join the church. I, I tell people, if you don't like the idea of submitting to your wife, submitting to your husband in marriage, don't get married. Well, I like the idea of being married. I just don't want him to tell me what to do. I like the idea of being married. I don't want her to tell me what to do. I like the idea of being in the church. I just don't want to be under any kind of authority, and I don't want to be subject to anybody else's opinions or interpretations. Good luck with that. It just doesn't work like that. Because of the body, no one member is free to do something that has a negative effect on the rest of the body. If you want to be independent, then you need to be independent. And I say good luck with that too. That means you get to travel through the wilderness on your own. I like the idea that God had a plan that, yes, we're going to spend our time in the wilderness as we travel toward the promised land, but we won't have to spend our time by ourselves. We have traveling partners. It's called the church. If you want to be independent, what you're really saying to God is, I can do this whole wilderness thing by myself. No, you can't. If Satan cuts you out of the herd, he will eat you alive. He'll single you out, and he'll destroy you. But in the body of Christ, there's strength. 
And because of the body, no one member is free to do something that has a negative effect on the rest of the body. So we must consider the body when we come to Christ. The body is us in this case. Our freedom in Christ does not make us free from our responsibility to the body of Christ. Am I free? Is that a singular statement? Yes, I am free. But am I free from the connection I have to you? No. My freedom does not mean I am independent. My freedom is I am dependent. The concept of freedom being independence is the lie. Did you create yourself? Can you give yourself life? Can you give yourself breath? No. I am dependent. And we are interdependent and dependent on Him. Now, chapter 9 begins with this topic of freedom. But I need to remind you of the context. In the original letter of 1 Corinthians, there's no chapters and verses. So, if you think that chapter 9 is a turn of the page on the parchment, you're just imagining it. It doesn't work like that. Now, listen, I'm glad there's chapters and verses because I would never find anything if it wasn't chapters and verses. But you have to always read Scripture in context, in the flow of the idea. So before I open chapter 9, I want to remind you that the context is this. We touched on it last week. I didn't put it in the paper. Paul says, but you must be careful that your freedom does not cause another to stumble. So what's the Freedom. Be careful that your freedom, and, and I'll touch on what, your, your freedom to drink wine. Paul brings it up, I'll bring it up doesn't cause somebody else to stumble. Your, your freedom to do something that you're free to do, because to you, you don't have a conscience issue with it. But be careful that your freedom doesn't cause somebody else to stumble. So in that context, verse 1, chapter 9. Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Even if others think I am not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. He's asking questions. Why is he asking? Is he really asking questions? He's not asking questions. He's making statements by way of questions. And he wants to prove to the point that that freedom also comes with this announcement of truth. He says, am I as free as anyone else? In other words, just because I'm an apostle, just because I met Jesus, does that mean that somehow or another I don't have freedom to make these choices? And I, can I be independent? Can I be independent, make my decision irregardless of how it's going to affect you? You see, that's what he's trying to teach is the interdependence of the body of Christ. If Jesus sets us free, then truly Paul is free because he has encountered Christ, seen him with his own eyes. Verse 3. This is my answer to those questions, those who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? So I want you to visualize as I say this. Paul is a traveling evangelist. 
Okay? Where's Paul's home? I'm not sure at this stage in his life that he would even have said he had a home. Because he's, he's mobile. He's moving. He's moving, he's moving, he's moving. And when he moves, does he just check into the Holiday Inn and throw down his visa card? And deal with it when the bill comes in? What's he going to do? He's going and staying in people's houses. He's going to Corinth. And when he gets to Corinth, he's living with some believers. He's going to move into their back room. That's what he does. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife? Don't we have a right to bring a Christian wife with us as the other disciples and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? So is Paul the only traveling evangelist? No, there's a bunch of them. And they're bringing their wives with them. Paul's not married. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? Do you feel some tension in those verses? If you read that letter, do you feel like Paul's a little on edge right now? I do. Peter brings his wife on mission trips, and you take care of all of his expenses. Right? That's what he's saying. Do you read between the lines? Peter brought his wife. You took care of all their costs. But Paul and Barnabas are out making tents, and if you read the context of all the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas were doing what? They, were, they had a side job. They're, they're tent makers. They were making tents to pay their own expenses, and they aren't even bringing their wives with them, and they're still having to pay their own expenses. I guess they got a part-time job with the Coleman Company while make some tents while they were in town. They had to have a job. Why? Wouldn't it be better if they didn't have to do that on the side, that they could just focus on the ministry? He's making a point. Here it comes. What's the point? Remember, we're talking about the body and freedom. Verse 7. What soldier has to pay his own expenses? You think it's hard to, you think it's hard to get anybody to join the army now? What, what, what if he joined the army and he had to pay his own expenses? Buy your own uniform. Get your own gun. What farmer plants a vineyard doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of its milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion? Here's where it comes. Listen. Are these just physical analogies because Paul has some physical needs? Or is he using the physical analogy, the physical needs to, to teach a spiritual truth? Or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. So I want you to visualize, uh, do you all know what he's talking about here? In that day, you didn't go to Kroger and buy flour, okay? So they had an animal that walked in a circle, and the circle had a giant stone, and they would put the grain down, and the animal was, had walked, an ox would walk a circle, and they would actually allow the, the stone to crush the grain. Now, now, while that ox is doing the circle, do you think it's nice to the ox to put a muzzle on his mouth as he goes around and around and around and around and around? I wonder if he throws up after so many trips. I would. You see, it's, it's unnatural 
You would think it would be animal abuse to not let him eat while he grinds. Where's Paul going? You can see where he's going, right? The interconnectivity of the body of Christ. Each part of the body has a different role. But sometimes different parts of the body are dependent upon other parts of the body for their supply. You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Because what's he just quote? He's quoting the Old Testament law. Don't you muzzle that ox. Let him eat. Verse 10. Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes. It was written for us. So that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect to share in the harvest. Two different roles. But they both get a share. Paul is the ox in this analogy. Paul is the ox that is grinding grain and he needs to eat. And the people that are receiving the grain that he, the ox, is grinding need to be happy to feed him sufficiently for his grain grinding. Right? They need to be happy that, that they feed the ox while he's grinding their grain. Don't, don't be mean. Yeah, you can have some grain if you're going to whine about it. Be happy to feed him. Th these are Old Testament principles and New Testament principles, but they're life principles. Let me prove to you. Now, now some of you in the room are old enough. How many of you all remember the car that came out on the American market for a very narrow time called the Yugo? Did anybody buy one? I was going to pray for you if you did. I remember the little Yugo. Everybody in America made fun of the Yugo. I never actually rode in one. I did see some. Nobody wanted to buy a Yugo. They were cheap. I mean, they were cheap, cheap compared to everybody else's car. They were cheap. Because the people who made those cars in Yugoslavia, that's why it was called Yugo, they didn't get to eat the grain while they grinded out the corn. They didn't get to share in the harvest. They didn't get to. Why? Because communism didn't work that way. Communism said that everybody gets the same thing. Regardless if you do or you don't, it's just the idea that the government will decide the allocation. If you grind grain or if you stayed at home and didn't grind grain, the idea was that we would serve everybody equally. Well, it's a pleasant concept until it hits reality. And when it hits reality in human nature, it doesn't work. In fact, find me Yugoslavia on the map today. Not only did the cars not make it, neither did the nation. Why? The idea of the ox grinding out the grain, eating as he grinds, is the spiritual concept of humans. Next verse, 11. Since we have planted spiritual seeds among you, aren't we entitled to harvest of physical food and drink? Translation. We preach the gospel to you. We should stay in your houses and you should feed us. That's what he's saying. 
If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used that right. Now, here's where Paul takes a turn, kind of a surprising turn. He's just said, don't you muzzle the ox that grinds the grain. Then he says, but I never ate any of your grain while I was grinding. He says, but we never use this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. It seems pretty clear to me by this letter that there is not enough grain sharing going on in Corinth. He's making a point. Now go to verse 13. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get to share in the sacrificial offering. So let me, let's pause with the New Testament church age doctrine and let's see where Paul's drawing this analogy. Paul says, don't you realize that those who work in the temple, what's he talking? He's talking about the Old Testament, the Jewish law. If you worked in the temple, you were either, you had two options to be in the temple organizational structure. One, you are a, a Levite. You are from the tribe of Levi, and if that's not on your resume, you don't get the job. And number two, you had to be from the family of Aaron. You had to be from the family of Aaron to be a priest, and you had to be from a Levite family to even work in the temple. But I'm going to ask you a question. How did the Levites and the priesthood supply for their family? Where did they get food to eat? What was their vocational um, job that allowed them to take care of their kids, wife and kids? How did they do it? They got a portion of what was brought to the temple. Do you know that? They got a cut. Now, if you say that to some people, they say, see, that's those sneaky preachers. <laughs> they got a cut. You know, keep those cards and letters coming, and then we'll get a cut as you open the mailbox, right? Let me give you an example. Let's go back to the law. Paul just quoted the law, so let's go to Leviticus. Let's see, let's see specifically, and by the way, oh my goodness, there's pages and pages and pages and pages of this. I only just cut out a couple of them. This is deep. So let's just look at Leviticus 5.12, Old Testament law. This is God telling Moses how to do it. This, this is not Moses saying, hey, I got a plan. This is God's giving him instruction. Take the flour to the priest who will scoop out a handful as a representative portion. Now, now who's bringing the flour? These are, these are the tribes, not the Levites, not the, not the priests. Okay. These are the tribes people, the, the common people who are coming to the temple to worship. He says, take the flour to the priest who will scoop out a handful of a, as a representative portion. He will burn it on the, top of the, on the altar on top of the special gifts presented to the Lord. It is an offering for sin. Now, you're going to want that priest to do that. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Because that offering is going to cover your sin. This is, this is a sacrificial offering, right? You want that priest. You want him to do this. Next part, verse 13. Through the process, through this process, what? 
bringing your flower to the temple. The priest will purify those who are guilty of any of these sins. You're going to want that, trust me. Making them right with God, and they'll be forgiven. Now, now stop. Don't read any more, and you're going to say, I like that priest. Right? I like that priest, because you know what? I gave him the flour. He scooped out a portion. He burned a sacrificial offering. I can't do it. Listen, listen. You can't do it yourself. God says, no, don't you do it. You come up there by yourself. I'm, I'm going to come against you. you got to do it God's way. you got to do it through the priesthood. And you're going to want this guy, and you're going to like what he did, maybe until the next verse. The rest of the flour will belong to the priest, just as the grain offering. There you go. I knew he had an angle. He gets a cut. The rest of the flour, who gets it? Well, you liked him just a minute ago until you found out that after you left, he had a whole big sack of flour. The priests lived on the offerings that were brought to the temple. They weren't allowed to make a living elsewhere. In fact, listen, maybe some of you don't even know this. When Joshua brings Israel, two million people, across the Jordan River, they take Jericho, eventually they fight battle, 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 battle. You know what? When it came time to give them their allocation of land, allocation, he's going to divide the land up to give the inheritance that God promised Abraham to these tribes of Israel. And it came to the family of Levi, this guy that gets a scoop of flour when it came to him. How much land did he get allocated? Basically, nothing. What he got was only adjacent to the temple itself. He didn't get, he didn't get this great big portion. He didn't have these big farm plots. He, he didn't get any of that. Why? You know what God said to Joshua? Tell Levi, tell the tribes of Levi, listen, listen, listen. I will be their inheritance. Now that sounds real good until you got hungry. But you know what God's plan was? I'll be their inheritance, and when they bring an offering to me, to God, I'll give you a portion. God had a plan, and the body would not be independent of each other. They would be interdependent of each other. Now, number 7-1. I'll give you the second example, and then we'll go back to Corinthians. On the day Moses set up the tabernacle, now, what's that? That's the mobile temple, okay? It's not the permanent temple, it's the tent of meetings. On the day that Moses set up the tabernacle, he anointed it and set it apart as holy. He also anointed and set apart all of its furnishings and the altar with its utensils. Then the leaders of Israel, the tribal leaders who had registered the troops, came and brought their offerings. So these are the common people of Israel bringing offerings to this tabernacle. Now, who can receive offerings? Well, it had to be the priest. And the Levites were working under the priest. Together, they brought six large wagons and 12 oxen. I'm talking about an offering. Six large wagons, 12 oxen. There was a wagon for every two leaders and an ox for each leader. Twelve tribes of Israel. They presented those to the Lord in front of the tabernacle. Presented them to who? Whom? 
They presented them to the Lord. Why? Because God told them to. In front of the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Receive their gifts and use these oxen and wagons for transporting the tabernacle. It's a mobile worship center. So you're going to use the ox and the wagons to transport, okay? Distribute them among the Levites according to the work they have to do. So Moses took the wagon and the oxen and presented them to the Levites. Now, he took God in, he is redistributing wealth. Did you hear me? Most Americans don't like that idea. I don't like it when the government does it, but when God does it, I'm okay. He is redistributing wealth. He is taking it from the tribes and transferring it to the Levites. Why? I will be their inheritance. Paul is connected his ox plowing to the Jewish practice of sharing offerings. And now, back to Corinthians, verse, nine, verse 14. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Now, y'all hear me? Paul is writing a New Testament, church-age, Gentile church. And what does he say? The Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from the preaching of the good news. Yet I have never used any of these rights. And I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. What? Using these rights. I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Now listen carefully what I'm about to say. This is the point where I disagree with Paul. I need to say that out loud. Look at that last sentence. I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. I don't feel that way. In fact, I encourage you to keep paying me while this ox walks in circles, grinding grain. Don't you put a muzzle, just pitch a, pitch a little out there every now and then. Verse 16, yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think he's doing it for money? He ain't. In fact, he's, he says, I don't even want you to pay me. I'll find somewhere else. I'll make sense. Can I add a personal note here outside of the fact that I would like for you to continue to pay me? Okay? This was a defining moment for me. So when I read this, it's emotional for me. For me to quit my job uh, 15 years ago, which I was able to provide for myself and my family. I was able to take care of my own needs. I had a job that I didn't need to ask anybody for money. I didn't have to depend upon somebody else for money. I had a job where I could take care of my wife and my children. And for me to walk out of that condition, to walk away from that condition where I could provide for myself, at least the idea that I could provide for myself, 
and submit myself to the body of Christ and trust God through the, that the body would provide for me was a monumental moment for me. In fact, I'm going to tell you, when I quit my job, uh, I remember Bart Sayers. Bart in here, Bart's not here tonight. I remember sitting in that room up there, and, and um, we knew it was a moment of truth. We, we, had, to, we had to make a decision. Are we going to go through, move forward with this? And um, I won't mention which one said it, but one of them looked at me and said, what's the least you can live on? Now, if you go to a job interview and they ask you that, how long are you going to sit in there? <laughs> what's the least you can do this for? And I had known that question was coming, and I gave them a number. And, uh, and that they had shown me their records on offering, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. But they said they would. But on paper, they couldn't. That was a defining moment. That's the thing you don't go home and tell your wife the details. But listen. They said I could bring my wife on the mission trip and the kids. And I can stand here 15 years later, and I want to say this. I need to say this. Those first five, six years, it was terrible. It was terrible. Uh, I never missed a paycheck, but those paychecks were terrible. But I'm going to tell you, since then, you all need to know this, since then, I am paid very, very well now. So don't feel sorry for me. That does not mean you all can quit giving. <laughs> but I, I want to tell you, those first five or six years were awful. They were. And we pretty much lived on money I had set aside. But what did God do from that? You know what? Now we got multiple staff. I am paid very well. Our staff's paid well. Um, it works. It works. But here's the point that makes it personal for me. He says this, I am compelled by God to do it. He wasn't doing it because the paycheck was this much or this much or this much. Paul says he was compelled to do it, and I'm going to say me too. I know what God said. I know what he said. I wouldn't have left for a paycheck. Up or down. Verse 17. If I were doing this on my own initiative, Paul says, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice. For God has given me this sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. Do you know how many preachers leave the ministry because they can't support their families each year? It's the number one reason. Number one reason. Preachers in churches, little country churches, not everybody has a story like this one. I'm going to tell you, not everybody has a story like this one that you come and you say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll try together, you know, and five, six, seven years later, they, they, they can't even make payroll. 
You know what? And it's a big, it's a big deal. You think, why is that? Why is that? You think it's because God doesn't provide? God always provides. But he needs people who will believe him. And when people believe him, he opens this valve up. He's got the valve. He turns it on. He releases the supply. Verse verse 19. Even though I am free with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring Jews to Christ. (laughs) I love this part. He became a chameleon. In other words, I just blended in where I was so that they would see me as one of them so they'd listen to me. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under the law even though I'm not subject to the law. I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. And when I was with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. This is true freedom. Living in the body of Christ and living under the laws of Christ is true freedom. Whatever you thought freedom would look like, he just told you what it is. Living in the body of Christ under the laws of Christ is freedom. Paul submitted his personal desire to those around him so that he might win something, some, win some to Christ. Let me repeat, let, now let me do 22 and 23. When I am with those who are weak, I share in their weaknesses. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and to share its blessing, fitting in with people around him so that they might listen to his message. But everybody listen, 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 listen. Fitting in without compromising the word of truth. Here is the the trap. Where is the line between fitting in and compromising the truth? See, I, I, I think that you can do both. I think you can fit in. I think that, that the church can, can operate in a fallen world without compromise. And I think the church can operate in the fallen world and still be connected to the humanity of those beside us without compromising the truth. I, I do. But it has to be because of love. It has to be because of love. It can't be because somebody thinks that you're just trying to indoctrinate them or condemn them or have them join your club. It's got to be because you love them. I've said on multiple occasions and sometimes in situations where people were so mad at me, I have said this. Listen, I love you enough to tell you the truth even if nobody else will. And I'm going to tell you what, I have said that when I have looked somebody in the eye who was so angry at me. Why? Because I would not go along. I wouldn't go along. But yet, but I'm still here. I'm still here with you. 
I'm still here with you as your friend. I, I'm not pushing myself away. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to come and stand here and tell you the truth. I'm not condemning you. I'm not going to try to issue some judgment over top of you. But I think you're worth saving. I think this is worth my time. If we do it that way, not in condemnation, not in some spiritual arrogance, Paul then adds the, a sports analogy. Next verse, verse 24. Don't you realize that in a race everybody runs? Everyone runs in this race, but only one person gets a prize. Now listen, as I read this, I want you to think deeply about these words. Because we're hitting the sobering part of tonight's discussion. Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So, run to win church the one who met jesus is looking at you tonight and saying run to win not just to finish no, 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 no. to win all athletes are disciplined in their training they do it to win a prize that will fade away but we do it for an eternal prize so I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. <laughs> I like that analogy. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, otherwise, why, why, here, here I see Paul. He's a, I'm not shadow, these are not empty punches. It's not empty walk. It's not a life of living a practice. No, I'm in the game. I'm not just practicing, practicing, practicing. I'm in the game. I'm not shadow boxing, swinging at nothing. I'm swinging at something. There's a purpose to my methodology. Why? Why? Because here it comes. Here, I told you this is the sobering part. Otherwise, I fear. What's he afraid of? That after preaching to you, I might be disqualified. Buddy, that's sobering. This is the man who met Jesus face to face and was lifted to the third heaven. And he's afraid of what? That I would spend my life, my life preaching to other people and stand at the end disqualified myself. Run to win. This is the message of Christ. Run with purpose in every step. This is the message of Christ, not Paul. What's at stake? And what if I don't run to win? What if I don't finish the race? I fear that after preaching, I'm not going to finish the race. How could he say that? And what does that say to us today? Pause for a moment. How could he say that? And what does that mean to you tonight, right now? It is in this context of this fear of personally being disqualified that chapter 10 begins. Please don't miss the connection. There's no chapter breaks in his letter. In this context, what? I'm afraid that I'm going to preach the gospel all over this world and be disqualified. He is, he is not shadow boxing. He's in this thing to win. 
you will not call him lukewarm. Nope. He gets it. And in that context, listen, the first verse of chapter 10. Here it comes. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. How many of them? How many? All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. Right now, as I read this, I want you to visualize. Moses is leading them out of Egypt, and what's going in front of Moses? A, A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. What's the pillar of cloud? God is leading them. Okay? How many of them are being led by the pillar of cloud? How many of them? All of them. These are not casual words. 100% of them are guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. Here we go. All of them walk through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, manna. And all of them drank the same spiritual water. Now pause, 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 pause. So all of them made it, right? You'd be wrong. And what's the context of this verse? I am afraid that after preaching the gospel to every one of you, I will be disqualified myself. You think he doesn't get it? You think the normal American church gets it? Well, I'll I'll explain that in a minute. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was what? Jesus. Did you know he was around then? Yet God was not pleased with most of them. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Think deeply about these five verses in context of Paul's fear that he would preach and then be disqualified himself. What do you think it means? What if, what if uh, the neighbor down the road read that and called you over for a cup of coffee and said, explain it? What would you tell him? Do you know you ought to be able to tell him? Do you know you better be able to tell him? Notice how many times the phrase all of them is used in comparison to how many of them survived. All of them, the phrase is used five times. Most of them, once. Most of them didn't make it because they were disqualified. Did you hear me? Most of them didn't make it. Because why? They were disqualified. What's Paul afraid of? He'd become one of those that's disqualified. Is that just football coach motivational tactics? Some people read this and think, that's how you motivate people. huh? That's the Vince Lombardi speech. No, it's not. By the way, did you know it was Jesus leading them through the wilderness 1,500 years before he was born in Bethlehem? You ought to be able to explain that to your neighbor too over coffee. 
I want to read to you two Old Testament scriptures that will help reveal what I just read to you in chapter 10. The first is Exodus 17. God said to Moses, I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, Moses, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Now, now, why am I putting that in here? Because it says all of them got to drink out of that water. All of them. All of them did what? All of them saw the cloud. All of them walked through the sea. All of them ate the spiritual bread. They were all baptized by the water. They passed through the water. All of them. Now go to Psalm 78. For he divided the sea and led them through, making the water stand up like walls. In the daytime he led them by a cloud, and at night a pillar of fire. He split open the rocks in the wilderness, and he gave them water as from a gushing spring. He made streams pour from a rock, making the waters flow down like a river. Yet they kept on sinning against him. How in the world? You ever read this and think, how in the world? When you just, when you just walked behind a pillar of fire, you just walked behind a pillar of cloud. You just walked through the Red Sea. You just saw manna come out of heaven. You just saw Moses hit a rock and water come out. And still, you sin against God. You think that's just an Old Testament story? Verse 17 again. Yet they kept on sinning against him and rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Now listen, listen, listen. Do you know how many adult males from that generation made it to the promised land? Do you know how many adult males from that generation made it? Two. Two. Does that get your attention? Because that gets my attention. And when I read to you tonight that Paul says, I'm afraid I'm going to preach all my life and then I'll be disqualified. And then he tells the story how most of them, 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 uh, excuse me, all of them, but only most of them, they, they still rebelled. They still rebelled. Do you know how many there were when they left Egypt? I told you two made it, okay? The Bible is very detailed, in case you haven't noticed. So two made it, right? How many left? Here we go. I'll read it to you. These were the men registered by Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders of Israel, all listed according to their ancestral descent. They were registered by families. All the men of Israel who were 20 years old or older were able to go to war. The total number was 603,550. This did not include the Levites. I told you they were a separate people. For the Lord had said to Moses, Do not include the tribe of Levite and Levi in the registration. Do not count them with the rest of the Israelites. So how many was that? 603,550? Yeah. 603,550. How many made it? Those good odds? And, and yet, I, every funeral home I have gone to in my lifetime, everybody goes to heaven. It's amazing to me. It's amazing. 
Maybe just be where we live. Everybody goes to heaven. It goes to heaven here. It's amazing. Are you amazed? Because I'm amazed. I have been to one funeral home where somebody walked up to me and said, I bet he's in hell. <laughs> Never has happened. I'm waiting for that one. Nobody says it. Why? Everybody goes to heaven. And yet when I look at how many of them made it, 603,550 of them left and only two of them went in to the promised land. You won't be able to say that you didn't know, and you won't be able to say that God didn't warn you. Why? Because listen to the next verse. These things happened as a warning to us. What things? I just read them to you. They happened as a what? As a warning. So that we would not crave the evil things as they did, or worship idols, as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Those sinful cravings will get you killed. That part has not changed, and yes, we are all from Egypt. And we are certainly right now in the wilderness. Want another example? Verse 9. Next verse. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they died by snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the angel of death. Now, I, I can't hardly read that without making the comment. If God struck dead grumblers, there would be a great decrease of population. I'm going to make an announcement. If he struck dead grumblers just because they're grumblers, he'd clean house. Verse 11. These things happened as examples for us. Now I want you to draw a parallel between verse 6 above and verse 11 below. These things happened as a warning for us. These things happened as an example for us. And they are written down. Is that blowing anybody away? Where do you think I'm reading from? They are written down. What? The warning's written down. You, you, I didn't know. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. They're written down to warn us who live when. Who live when? At the end of the age. Are we at the end of the age? Yes, we are. And they're written down. What? Warnings. What? Many are going to be disqualified. Written down as examples for those who live in the church age. See, I'm convinced that when the church age began on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he quotes the prophet Joel. And what does he quote from the prophet Joel? In the last days. I believe the last days began on the day of Pentecost. And it's ticking down to zero. Do you believe this is God's warning to the church through the Apostle Paul? I do. I do. To the church right now, today, Nineveh, us in this room. Yes, yes, I do. It's a warning to me. It's a warning to me. I wonder if spiritual arrogance might be the most deadly of all deceptions. 
I want to say it loud and clear. I wonder if spiritual arrogance might be the most deadly of all deceptions. I remember hearing a guy, Paul Washer, speak years ago, and he said something I've never forgot. He's almost too intense even for me. But I remember him saying something that I never forgot. He said this, I wonder if the most dangerous place in America is in the Bible Belt. I agree with him. I wonder if the most dangerous spiritual location in America is in the Bible Belt. Why? Because it's people who have this comfortable, everybody goes to heaven mentality. And it's not based on a lick of truth. Not a lick. It's this spiritual arrogance. What? It's from the same thing I just mentioned. You, 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 I've been alive 60 years and everybody goes to heaven. Gosh, the, odd, the odds are you, could, you can do anything and go to heaven. You can be anybody and go to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. All dogs go to heaven. Right? Everybody goes to heaven. You know what the last church in Revelation is? There's seven churches. I don't think the sequence is accidental. You know what the last one is? Laodicea. What do you say to the last church? Many people believe that the last church is a reference to they'll be a symbol of the church at his return. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you were lukewarm, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you. Verse 12. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different than what others have experienced. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. Here's my experience in that verse. God seems to always leave a back door. I've noticed it. There's always this little escape. When you're in that moment of truth, when you're in that moment where sin is so attractive, so right now, whoa, here, there's a cracked door behind you that you can get out of. The question is whether you'll turn and go out that door or you'll walk into the darkness. I want to read it again. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different. You think we're not, you think, do you think those 603,550 people are facing anything fundamentally different than we are? Fundamentally different than we are? They're not facing any fundamental differences than we are. Will we follow God or will we rebel? Will we listen to his word or ignore it? Which one? The temptations in your life are no different than what others have experienced. God's faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. You know what that means? I think that means that, that if, if you're being tested, if God allows tempting or testing to come into your life, there's, there's no test you can't pass with Him. With Him. You'll pass the test. With Him. Now, listen. With Him. Without Him, I don't know what 
test you're going to pass. But with him. This is a good place to stop. Stop and reflect on how God is both kind and severe because tonight we saw both. So let's close tonight with Paul's letter to that other church in Rome. He says, notice how God is both kind and severe. Amen. Amen. He, he's, he's kind, but I'm going to tell you, he's also severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed. But he's kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting. But if you stop trusting, you will be cut off. So if you're in the room tonight and you think, well, you know what? I'm one of those guys that believes that once I do this or this or that, nothing can take me out of his hand. I'm going to tell you, I agree with you. Nothing, no thing can take you out of his hand. But you can take you out of his hand. And if you let anybody tell you different, you have abandoned the word of truth. No thing, no power in heaven or on earth can remove you from the hand of God. But I'm going to tell you, there is one thing that is fatal. Unbelief. And if your heart turns away from the one true God, turns away, departs from faith in Him, you have abandoned the very one who came to save you. He did not abandon you. You abandoned Him. And I agree, there is no power that can take you out of His hand. Satan cannot snatch you from God's grip. But unbelief, is yours. What you believe or what you don't believe is yours and mine. I own it. You own it. It won't be somebody else's fault what you believed or didn't believe. You own it. And Paul said, I'm afraid, and it's a good fear. Some fear is healthy. I'm afraid that I might preach the gospel and be disqualified myself. Some fear is good. It's motivational. I told the story uh, several times before. Uh, when Audrey, my daughter, was real little, she was in her bedroom, and we were in the living room, and I, she's playing, and she was one of those, the only kid we had and didn't get in trouble. So she's in the bedroom, and she's on the other side of the bed doing something, and, and I hear a pow! The lights in the house flickered. I thought, oh, no. So I ran, I ran in the in the bedroom and i had to get up on the bed to look over the bed to see where she was at and she is there with a fork in her hand and she has pried those little safety things off of the plugs she pried it off with that fork and stuck that fork in there and she her hands were black from the smoke didn't evidently didn't shock her god is faithful but didn't, didn't i don't know if it shocked her or not all I know is when she turned around and looked at me, she had this like, it's like if she could have spoke adult language, she'd have said, whoa. <laughs> listen, listen, here's where I'm going. I never had to put those plug protectors on any of those plugs in Audrey's room ever again. You know why? She would never do that again. Fear. 
can be a wonderful thing. And Paul, the man who met Jesus, said tonight in these words, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I could preach life-giving truth to all these people and somehow I might fall into some form of spiritual arrogance and be disqualified myself. So I discipline my body. I discipline myself so that I will never allow Satan a foothold inside this temple. How does he do it? Same way you'll do it, same way I'll do it. I will be a man of the Word of God. I will be a man of prayer. And I will be a man who walks in the spirit of truth. And if I do that, God's power will be manifest in me. It will be manifest in you. And in that moment, no power, nothing can take you out of his hand. Father, tonight we worship you. We also have this fear that spiritual arrogance is deadly. We have no entitlement to this gift of grace. And we see by your word the warnings, the examples written down for us in the last days that many, many will be lost because they thought everybody was going to receive the prize. But the prize is for those who will believe. And tonight, Father, we believe you. And we believe you enough to live in some fear. And the fear is that our nature leans away from you. And unless you turn our nature, unless you turn our hearts towards you, we too would be deceived. So may your power in us be the light that guides us to that last day of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight.